0: have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to go to John chapter 1 with me this morning. John chapter 1. We're going to continue our introduction into the gospel of John. Last week we learned about John's purpose for writing in the book. He wanted us to see that there were these signs that Jesus did, and they were a sampling of the miracles. He did all kinds of miracles, but John chose seven specific miracles And we'll see them all as we walk through the Gospel of John. And they were meant to be a specific signs that show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So he said, here are the signs that prove Jesus is who he says he is and was and is today. And then he said that the purpose in putting all that there was not only that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but that believing you might have life evermore. Today, I want to do not an expositional sermon, it's really a topical sermon. I want to do a character st- sketch of John. And obviously, the title of my entire series is called Conversations with Christ. And so today, I want to talk about John the Apostle, and he was a man changed by Jesus. You've seen those commercials of the hair club for men, when the, the guy, Dr. Bosley, and all these other ones says, I'm I'm not just, a, um, I don't just sell this, I'm also a client, Well, John wants us to know when he writes this, he's not someone just writing about Jesus. He has met him personally, that everything he talks about Jesus is something he has personally experienced. And I think there's nothing greater than that. And last week we looked at John's purpose, which in a sentence was this, right? John presents the real Jesus and what he did. Why? So that we can know that he is God and that we must believe in him to have the only life worth living. A life that gets better for eternity. And I will tell you, church, there is nothing more powerful than someone who can move beyond just talking about Jesus and actually lives out this life that you can look at him or her or them and say, I don't, I, I don't know about them. I don't even know if I agree with them. I don't know if I believe what they believe. But I'll tell you this, they are forever changed. And one of my favorite examples of this, again, is George Whitfield. George Whitfield, who preached and was a part of that great awakening, they would say that there was times that George Whitfield, like Spurgeon, preached to 20,000 people without a PA system. What kind of pipes did you have to do that? But I love the fact that one of his neighbors was an atheist. And the fact that one morning, uh, Whitfield was off to get ready to preach, and his atheist friend got up, and he was leaving his house, and a friend showed up, and he said, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to hear Whitfield preach. As which his friend said, but you don't even believe in God. And he said, no, but Whitfield does. And that fascinates me. And so there's nothing more powerful, nothing more effective than when you live a life that says, not only what I say, but how I live agree. And does Jesus make a difference for you in your life? So let me ask this question. Do you know Jesus. Do you know Him in a way that would change you, in a way that has changed you? In the jury of your peers, the jury of your family, the jury of your co-workers, the jury of your fellow students, the jury of your neighbors, if they were talked to, to be talked to were interviewed, you know, what always fascinates me is when we find out about some horrific thing, some tragic thing uh, that happened in the side of somebody's life or someone's home and they interview the neighbors and they're like, I had no idea he or she was like that. Well, could that not be true of so many of us that profess Christ? It's like it's our little pocket membership card that we keep in our wallet and every now and then we, we try to pull it out, but it's not what we're known for. It's not what we're known for. And I want you to think through this question, do you know Jesus? Because my next question with this is how does knowing him change you? If Jesus is nothing more than an add-on, can I delicately but just gently and somewhat courageously say, guys, there's better things in life to do. You have much better hobbies, much better self-interest, there's much better things for you to go pursue than if Jesus is simply an add-on in your life. Because if he's nothing more than an add-on and not someone who has completely and utterly transformed you, really? Why would you do that to yourself? It's not worth it. Today we look at the person of John who is the writer of this gospel and I want you to notice a subtly I said that John is the writer of the book. I didn't say he was the author of the book. Next week, we're going to look at the author of the book. Always remember that God is the author, and that's why the Bible is different from every other book. One of my favorite speakers is a professor. He's now part-time. He's uh, getting up in in age. He's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. His name is Dr. Ron Blue. I've uh, been a missionary to Spanish-speaking world for most of his life. I had the privilege of having him come to my last ministry many times. He's, this, he's just full of life. He's got a contagious magnetic personality, and he's got the longest fingers that you've ever seen, and uh, he just, all the time he's preaching, he's doing this, and you, you feel like it's a magician or something up there, and he's doing this with, with his fingers the whole time, But but he would always say after he would read, or before he would read the Bible, he'd say, now let's talk to the author before we read his book. And then he would pray. And I love the fact that he did that because every time it was to remind us that the author is God. See, John was the writer, but the author is God. Remember what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Not some of it or most of it, all of it. And all of it is profitable. For teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This is the word of God. So I want us to consider the person of John, who this guy was, what kind of man he was. Well, here is how our artists render him. And Brother Steve and I did this. Here are four depictions of John in art of the history from the Renaissance and Reformation all up. And you'll notice that John is usually presented in a very feminine kind of way. He's usually, because often you've heard terms like he was the beloved disciple, he was the apostle of love, all these different types of things. But the most famous one of all is the very next picture, which is uh, The the Last Supper by Michelangelo and the Da Vinci Code movie and all this. They went on, you notice John, this is John over here, my right, your left as you're looking at it. Thank you, Steve. And remember that the whole conspiracy theory of the Da Vinci Code was this actually wasn't a, a guy, but a woman. And the idea here is, you'll notice how much most of the other people look very manly. You'd know they were men, but artists seem to want to tell you that John was almost womanlike. That somehow he was soft and weak. Because you can't think about the apostle of love and he's portrayed as timid or effeminate or weak or soft. And I need you to understand that none of those adjectives are bad in the proper context. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's almost like Art robs John of his manhood and tries to make him something he's not. But I want you to think about the biography of the Bible and how the Bible presents John. And I have to be honest, full disclosure, I love biographies. It's my favorite genre. If I have to read anything besides my Bible, I want to read about other people. Men and women, histor- historical figures, war, all these types of things. Brother Eugene just recently gave me a biography on Sir Wilfred Grenfell, and I'm, I, I can't, I'm digging into it. I just love it. I, I love to read biographies. I love to read all of these things. And I love movies and documentaries about other people. I love to follow these things. Just recently, I watched a program about Steve Jobs, who was basically the guy behind Apple, and all of the things. And he was a multi, multi, multi-billionaire. And he recently died of cancer. But what amazed me in both the documentary and the movie I watched about him. Was just how troubled he was. This guy who was known for all of his creativity. For driving literally thousands of employees. For giving us so many things that we used today. That we now we, would, we can't even imagine life without. And yet. He had a daughter that he denied was his for years, decades. He was known to be such a perfectionist that he drove everybody around him crazy. (coughs) He actually was a great failure. His story is one of mostly failure and then just this massive success that gave way to waves of other success. His public persona didn't match his personal one (coughs) on just about every level. I was confused when I read and watched the biography of Nelson Mandela. Because it seemed like Nelson Mandela was almost two entirely different people. Early on, Nelson Mandela, there was this terrorist version of him where he did all kinds of things to usurp apartheid. (coughs) Excuse me. But then there was the freed prisoner Nelson Mandela, this leader of a country. The Nobel Peace Prize winning version of Nelson Mandela that led a country into forgiveness and all of these types of things. And it's just a fascinating story. But one that really stuck out to me in full disclosure is my favorite is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, I've grown up since I was five years old hearing about Charles Spurgeon, listening to him quoted by my father, by my youth leaders, by my school teachers, my Sunday school teachers, by my pastors, all these things. I have heard him and listened to him quoted and read. I own many, many of his books and most of his sermons I have in my library. And it was his book, Lectures to My Students, that God used to draw me to himself. It was because I was reading that book one night in July of 1993 that Jesus Christ saved me and confronted me with James, which is to be a hearer of the word and and to be a doer of the word, but not a hearer is to not know Jesus at all. And so this convicted me. But as I started reading about my hero, Charles Spurgeon, I discovered a few things about this guy. I discovered that he was grossly obese and that in his later life, they had to actually build an elevator to get him up on the platform so he could take the pulpit. I learned that he battled depression almost all of his life. To the point where sometimes he was literally shut down in his ministry and he would have to take months off. I learned that not only was he, did he battle depression, it was debilitating depression. Spurgeon would literally have to go to France to a cottage he had there. And sometimes at one point in his life, lay in bed for over 60 days. Never left his bedroom for over 60 days. Just racked in depression. I learned that he was involved in several different controversies. I learned that he drank beer and smoked cigars. In fact, wrote most of his sermons on Saturday nights over a pint of beer with a cigar. That was quite controversial to many in my circle of friends as I grew up. He died at the tender age of 58. Having literally burned himself out for God. But he was used by God in ways that are still reverberating around the world to this day. But he was flawed. He was a sinner. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, William Wilberforce, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Isaac Watts, the father of modern hymnody, and of course, John Newton, they all share something in common. Are you ready for this? And here's my sermon for today in a sentence. They were all sinners saved by God to become saints all because of a great savior. If you really want to know what I want you to know about John, he was a sinner that met a savior and became a saint. That's what he was. John the Apostle, the Apostle of love, the beloved disciple, as we see him in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as you see him in the book of Acts, as you read his letters in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, John, as you read about him in Revelation, shows us again and again this sinner saved by God to become a saint of God, all because of a great Savior. Now, folks, listen to me. Pay attention. Being in a church or being with a group of people or helping a group of people doesn't make you a saint. A church can't make you a saint. A group of people can't make you a saint. A political leader can't make you a saint. You can't work your way to sainthood. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. Only Jesus has the power and perfection, the sacrifice and the servanthood, the holiness and the heart, the obedience and the ability to make anyone right with God. And any one of you in this room... Right here and right now, anyone who is right with God is declared to be a saint right away, all because of Jesus. And that's like why Luke tells us what he does. Luke says in Luke 15, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So in other words, get this, Luke is saying, show me one man or woman that says, you know what? I am messed up and need a savior. And there's more joy in heaven over that than a room full of people that say, I might not be perfect, but I'm not all bad. And there are too many churches filled with people like that. He says again, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. David said in Psalm 34 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. So I want you to know, man and woman, I want you to know, church, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have acknowledged your sinfulness and your sinnership, and you have come to Jesus trusting in him, you are declared a saint. You're already one. And it's not about your resume, it's about your Savior. That's what makes you a saint. That's why one of my favorite verses at the funerals of those who know Jesus Christ and die is Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. If you know Jesus and you die, it's not the end. David Phelps is right. It's the end of the beginning. It's the end of the beginning. And today I want you to meet John the man. I want you to meet The sinner. The man who met a savior and became a saint. And that, my friends, is the extended invitation to everyone here. I want you to know right now, admit who and what you are. Get in the habit of getting up in the morning, looking in the mirror and going, Hello, I'm a sinner. I have problems. But I got a greater Jesus. And he has done it all for me. I want you to admit and come to the one and only one who can do anything about your sinfulness. He, If you will settle in his love, his mercy, his grace, his peace, his forgiveness, his power and purpose for your life, you trust him, you believe in him, you give your life and your goals and your desires, your interests over to him, let Jesus align your life, trust Jesus with your circumstances, believe in his will for your life, whatever that looks like, and you'll never be the same again because John wasn't let's look at John chapter 1 verses 38 to 40 as John himself tells you how he met Jesus at this point we know about John the Baptist and John and Andrew are these two disciples here they have been walking with John the Baptist I'll get into that but in verse 38 we are told Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them so you'll notice back in 37 the two disciples that heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So this is John the Baptist, two followers of John the Baptist. John says, behold, the lamb of God. And Andrew and John hear him say that, and they go after him in verse 38. And Jesus turns to them and says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? And they say to him, rabbi, and I love this. John tells you what he means. He says, we called him rabbi, which means teacher. And he says, they said to him, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. If you write in your Bibles, you want to know when that, that the the Jewish time clock started at 6 a.m. So when it tells you that it's the 10th hour, it's 4 p.m. in the afternoon. In their day, there's no electricity, only candles. So it's getting to the end of the day. And they say it's about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, "We have found the Messiah, which means Christ." Now, notice the progression. At first, they went up to him and said, "Rabbi," which means teacher. They went and spent time with him. Now they've discovered already. Wait a second. He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah, and then we hear about Peter, who now will be called. Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so this is John telling us about the first interaction that he had with Jesus. So I want you to know, number one, John, the man, and to truly appreciate the gospel of John, to sense the reason we have John called the beloved disciple, to grasp why John was so much more about truth and love You have to know and see who he was before he became all of this. So I want you to realize that first, John was a fisherman. He was a fisherman. Back in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, you actually get, you find out how John became a full-time follower of Jesus. See, in John chapter 1, John tells you about his first introduction. In Mark chapter 1, you learn how he became a full-time follower. Passing along the seaside, he saw Simon and Andrew, they were brothers, And Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, so in the same Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, John the Apostle who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, now notice this, with the hired servants and followed him. Now I want you to catch all of this. John was a Galilean fisherman. Contrary to the artist's depictions, he was physically fit, likely fearless, or at least in control of his fear, because I have never met a full-time fisherman that is not on some level both fearless or in control of his fear. You have to be. You're not going to do that for a living and not be. He was a hardworking and very smart man. You had to be that as well. But also understand that the Galileans were to Jerusalemists, what we might say, Baymen are to townies. This is what you're dealing with. Hence why Luke says what he does in Acts chapter 4. When Luke says, now when they saw, that's the Pharisees, the religious elite of Jerusalem, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived, notice this, that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. Why? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So John was this fisherman. He was tough, but he was uneducated and common. He was a Galilean. But uneducated here doesn't mean a lack of intelligence. It means that he lacked a formal religious training. He didn't go to Harvard, Jerusalem. Okay? He might have went to community school. He might have just been second or third generation fisherman in his port of Capernaum. We know from Peter's denials that one of the ways he was recognized and accused was by his accent. All right. So Peter and Andrew and James and John grew up in the same town. They likely knew each other. But in Matthew 26, 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. And that's why I'll be honest, everywhere I've traveled my entire life, I've often said that Newfoundlanders were the Jews of the Gentiles. We're everywhere. And we all want to get back to our mother country of Newfoundland. We all want to get back here, but we all have our accent, don't we? And there's a distinct Bayman accent versus the townie accent. I grew up in Harbor Grace. Now, I've done pretty well because I've been out of Newfoundland for 15 years, moved back, lived most of my life in St. John's. But my wife never gets confused for being a Newfoundlander. Wherever we travel, she has this very, very beautiful, regular English accent. I get accused from being from Newfoundland every day and everywhere I go. And what's worse, put me around a group of Baymen, and, man, do I turn it on. It just comes out of me. All of a sudden, it's dir and dat, and what are you at? And all it just, I, When I was in PEI pastoring there, I had a bunch of distant relatives come from Salmon Cove in Victoria, and they came to visit me in PEI. And, I mean, they had a tick accent. And we all got out of church afterwards, and we're all in the parking lot, and we're talking away. And if you know, if you have Newfoundland uh, Bayman ants, they, they, there's no such thing as a regular kiss. They give you these big, wet kisses on the cheek that water runs off you for a long time and they grab your face and they smoosh it in and, and all this kind of stuff. And so all these ants that I had are kissing on me and saying things and I'm talking and all of a sudden I'm realizing as, as I'm having this conversation that there's about 15 people from my church, about 20 or 30 feet off, all just watching us have a conversation. And so we say the goodbyes and they leave. And then all those people that I have been around for 10, 12 years at that time come up to me and several of them said, Pastor, we know you guys said a lot of things, but we have no idea what you guys were talking about. And we can't tell if they love you or if they were really ticked with you because they kissed you, but they squeezed you and said things and yelled at you and pointed at you. and, And I mean, it was a really good conversation but it was very confusing to them. And so John was this very common fisherman. He was just a regular guy. He, he did little, little things. He was around the Bay Nufi. He was not formally mon-educated, but he was brilliant of mind and ethic, which by the way, many of our Bayman friends are. Many of them are. And if you'll notice at the end of the passage of Mark 1, John and his family were at least middle to upper middle class because it says that John with his brother, that, that they left and they left the hired servants with their father. So you weren't just a regular family if you had hired servants. That meant you were a little bit more. so, And we know that John was close to his brother because James and John are mentioned everywhere in the Gospels. Peter, James, John. And James and John were brothers. He was close to his family because his father Zebedee will be talked about many times. Even his mother appears in Matthew chapter 20 asking the most amazing question. But John was also religious and loyal. He was a fisherman, but he was religious and loyal. Look back a few verses of John chapter 1 verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, John and Andrew. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the lamb of God. I want you to realize back, if you go back to Matthew chapter three, verses one to six, Matthew tells us about John the Baptist and John the Baptist came preaching the wilderness in the wilderness of Judea, coming up as far as Galilee, and in those days, John the Baptist came preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now we're told that John wore a garment of camels here and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. He must have been organic. Organic. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river, notice this, confessing their sins. So John the fisherman is already showing he's religious. He's already responding to John the Baptist preaching. He's already hearing that you're supposed to confess and cry out and all these things and be baptized, and he's doing it. But the moment that John the Baptist pointed out who Jesus was, John the apostle goes straight after him. He goes right after him. He was loyal to John until John himself said, here's one more important to me. Then John says, well, if he's more important, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to go after him. John was religious. He was loyal. But I want you to know as well that he was self-tempered and self-centered. If you actually study how the gospels betray him. One of the most interesting passages is found in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 40. John said to him, now this is John the Apostle says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Because he was not following us. In other words, he wasn't one of the twelve. And so John says to Jesus, I want you to know this guy came along, and he was trying to do stuff, and we tried to stop him. But notice Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who was not against me is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Yet here is this short-tempered self-centered John saying, no, 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 listen, this guy's not one of us. So he's a fisherman, he's religious, he's loyal, but he's also very self-centered. Luke also records the same incident in Luke chapter 9, but we get a bit more background in that chapter. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him up by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is the greatest. Now, you need to think about this, all right? This is why I want you reading your Bibles. This took place after the transfiguration. When Peter and James and John go up on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus is displayed in all of his godness, and Moses and Elijah's there, and Peter runs his mouth and says, Let's build temples for everybody. And Jesus says, No, son, you're out of your mind. And God says, This is my beloved son, hear him. And as they're coming down the mountain, Peter, James, and John are like, Jesus, man, this was cool. And Jesus says, Tell nobody, keep it to yourselves until I tell you. And from that, they get down to the bottom, and the boys are like, Listen, what was that like? Can't tell you. Oh, and let me tell you something. But we must be in some important because I know stuff you don't know. And when God brings the kingdom in, <laughs> we're the inner circle, boys. We're the dudes. And then they get arguing with each other. And they get arguing. And then uh, if, if again, in, in Luke, in verses 51 to 55, listen to this. When the jays drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Now, these were like half-breeds. They were half-Gentile, half-Jew. Jews hated them, and they hated Jews to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Since Jesus was just going to walk on through, they're like, no, no, we don't, don't bother. Now, notice this. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Hence why, in Matthew, they're called the sons of thunder. That's why they're called this. But he turned, Jesus, and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. In Mark 3 as well, they're called the sons of thunder. Thunder. So you've got this short-tempered, self-centered guy in John who, when, when he was thinking about his way, he didn't want people around him, that if they weren't part of the inner circle, and if they didn't receive what Jesus offered, let's kill them. Let's just get rid of them. He is... Not patient. He's quick tempered. See, he was moral, but a sinner. You see, this fisherman who was religious and loyal, short tempered and self centered, he was moral, but he was a sinner. He was a hard working, moral, loyal, seeking man with a religious background, but he was flawed. He was a sinner. In fact, let me tell you, if you want to do some homework on this, read Mark chapter 9. It's an amazing chapter, but take your time and read it slowly. You see how John, every time, was a part of these things. He saw the transfiguration. He was all a part of these things, but Jesus bemoans their lack of faith. And every time, Jesus is rebuking John. You see, Jesus comes and says what he does. It's almost like John is confessing and the other apostles are confessing. Here's how flawed we are, guys. Here's how flawed we are. And l- later, John would write in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship him, with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, notice what John says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Do you think it's not possible that John is giving you a bit of his testimony here? This fisherman, who was hardworking, intelligent, loyal, religious, and moral, says, You know what? I walked around thinking I had no sin. I walked around feeling like I had done the right things. I was following the right people. I had aligned with the right, but I was just deceiving myself because the truth wasn't in me. And then he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thus, John the man, in order to be changed, but had had to have a relational experience that changed his life. Hence, John and his relationship. You see, John actually tells us about his relationship with John the Baptist and initial encounter and conversation with Jesus in John 1.35. But I want you to notice that John, while being loyal, was curious. He was curious because when Jesus, when when John says, Behold the Lamb of God, and they follow. Andrew and John go after Jesus. Notice in verse 38 and 39 what Jesus does. Jesus says, not, Why are you looking for me? He says, Who do you seek? It's, sorry, it's not who do you seek, but rather what do you seek. Jesus doesn't turn to them and say, why, why, why are you looking for me? Why are you looking? He looks at them and says, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Do you ever wonder why he asked them that? Do you ever wonder why he didn't say, well, listen, guys, I'm the Messiah. It's a good thing that you're following me. He doesn't. R.C.H. Lensky notes this. The first word spoken by Jesus and John's apostle is a master question. It bids them look look searchingly at their inmost longings and desires because a hidden promise lies in the question. What are you seeking? Jesus has the highest treasure any man or woman can seek, longs to direct our sinking toward that treasure in order that he or she may bestow it for our everlasting enrichment. You see, Jesus is not simply getting Andrew and John, the younger brothers of Peter and James, to acknowledge that he's the Messiah. He wants them to acknowledge that they're looking for answers. And aren't you and I looking for answers? Now be honest, because you're either looking for an answer or you're working hard to deny that you are. Those are the only two states of humanity I've ever met. Those that are honest that they're asking answers or those that are trying to stay busy or deny that they're asking those questions? And what are the questions we are asking? Where did I come from? Who am I? Where am I going? Does God exist? And can I know Him? What's your question in life? Why is there pain and suffering? Maybe that's your question. I get asked that a lot. If there's a God, why is there pain and suffering in the world? What about, will I ever be happy or rested or peaceful? Is there a chance I could ever be depression-free or anxiety-free? Have you ever said, oh, that I could just ask God, why do I seem to struggle and nobody else does? What does real love look like? or even feel like? Why can't I have friends? Why do bad people seem to win so much? Have you not wrestled with some of those questions? I've wrestled with every one of them and still wrestle with them. But Jesus asks, what do you seek? What's your question?" And notice, look at their answer, rabbi, which John tells us means teacher. So they're honoring and respectful, even though they're not sure if Jesus is the Messiah yet. And what's their question? Where, where are you staying? Where are you staying? Is that not like bait and switch? You know, they're not, they're, they're, they're not quite willing to go, well, we want to know if you're the guy. We want to know if you're God in the flesh. We, we've, we've got these struggles. We want to know, are you going to make sense? Are you going to free us from Rome? Why is all this? There, where, where, where are you staying? Have you ever not, if you're a parent, have you never ever had not had your children do that where your children come to you with questions and you know, they're not asking you the question they really want to ask you. Dad, how are you feeling today? Why? I just wondered. I feel pretty good. Really? Can I go to McDonald's? But it was led with, how are you feeling? Like you can, you know they're doing some investigative research before they really get to their question. And how often do we do that with God? How often are we trying to play with our questions? And so they're, where are you, they're curious. But you know what? They understand. John says this is the best plan to get with Jesus and ask him questions one-on-one. And so they stay with him. They're there at 4 p.m. And as the day was winding down, and they literally stay with him. And so John was loyal. If he signed up for something, he stuck with it. Yet John mentioned three times in the Bible and the Gospels having talked, and all three times it wasn't good. But I want you to notice how different it gets in this relationship in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple to pray, and on their way in, they perform a miracle where Peter directed his gaze at this man who was limp, and this beggar, as did John, and they said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You can tell John's relationship must have changed. Now in Acts chapter 4, he's dragged before with Peter again, the religious Pharisees and all the religious uh, elites. And Acts 4 tells us that John is bold. He's standing for the truth, doing so with patience and love an urgent passion for the lost. In, in Acts chapter 8, John is a sent missionary. Now listen, Acts chapter 8, John who said when they went into the village of Samaria and this Samaritan village wanted no part of it, and they said, can we call thunder down? Can we, can we just consume them with fire? Lord, can I pray the fire, exting- fire blaster just out on this? Now in Acts chapter 8, John is sent as a missionary to, of all places, Samaria. That's where he gets sent in Acts chapter 8. Go to Samaria, John. And he does. And that's the last we get of John. And the next time we find him is in his letters and in Revelation. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, John says, That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and to testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us, to which we have seen and heard. We proclaim also to you and that so that you too may have fellowship with us. Do you see the change in John? It once when a guy's casting out demons, but he's not a part of the 12. No, I told him to knock it off. When a Samaritan city wouldn't respond right away, let's burn them with fire when when jesus gives them some insight then they start having an argument over who's the best but now john is saying no we've seen all this so that we can have fellowship with anybody that knows jesus And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now John says, I find joy in being around other Christians. Whoever you are, whatever gender you are, whatever age you are, from whatever walk of life you are, John's like, this relationship with Jesus just makes me love anybody in a relationship with Jesus. Now I'm not going to get into it today because you're going to read about it as you study through the gospel of John. You'll read about John too in 12 Ordinary Men. But John was a black and white guy. He was a man of truth. In fact, he uses the word truth 45 times in his writings. He was a man of contrast. You read John's gospel or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John or Revelation. He sets light against darkness. He sets life against death, the kingdom of God against the kingdom of the devil. You're either children of God or children of Satan. You'll either know the resurrection unto life or be resurrected to damnation. You either receive Christ or reject him. You either produce fruit or you're fruitless. You either love or hate. John loved the truth. And for a while, truth meant more to him than love. He'd rather hit you over the head with truth than love you to it. Now, let's be honest. Have you ever met people like that? (laughs) People that rather take a big five pound King James Bible and just imprint it into your forehead than love you, than love you. John MacArthur puts it very well. It's wonderful to have a high regard for the truth, but zeal for the truth must be balanced by a love for people or it can give way to judgmentalism, harshness, and a lack of compassion. Truth without love has no decency. It's just brutality. On the other hand, love without truth has no character. It's just hypocrisy. Oh, that you guys would sink that. And take that in, no matter what John thought or brought who it was and how he was changed into his relationship. He lived for almost 100 years. He was well into his 90s. He pastored the church at Ephesus and really he pastored many other churches. He was loved and beloved. He was the last word from God to the church of all ages in Revelation. And the funny thing is, is that as he would write, he would write what he does to the church at Ephesus that was known for standing for the truth, but not for love. John was always struggling with his sanctification, but he always ran to Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times in the book of Revelation, he ends up bowing before an angel in which the angel says, don't be bound to me. And this is when he's in his 90s. I love that because he's still struggling, but he just keeps running back to Jesus. And whether in John 1 where he's meeting Jesus for the first time saying, where are you staying? Or at the cross when he's holding Mary, Jesus' mother, as he watches him die, and Jesus says, Behold your mother. Or whether he was all alone on an island and raptured in visions of the future. John the Apostle simply wanted to be with and where Jesus was. Oh, and by the way, is it any wonder that this would be the man who would say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, considering he saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, that we have fellowship one with the other. So there was John the man, the sinner, John and his relationships, and obviously, as I close, John and his savior. John and his savior. John went from an abrasive, short tempered, high expectations, loyal, hard working, self made family man to a truth loving, patient loving, kind hearted, people caring pastor. One who was known and loved and sought after and mourned. It is said that his motto for life and his closing remark in any address was little children love one another. He would close every sermon with little children love one another. Is it any wonder that maybe he took to heart the words of Jesus in John 13? A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I want you to think about John's admonitions in his three letters. In 1 John chapter 2, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. There's the black and white John. And the truth is not in him. For whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. There's the love part of John. John said, if you got truth, then you get love. Truth and love, truth and love. 1 John 4. Uh, Notice these verses. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him in this is love. Not that we had loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one, has ever seen God if we love one another God abides in us and his love is perfected in us do you realize just in those few verses 13 times love is used and yet it's all wrapped around truth and finally in John 5 listen to these words everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. There's the balance. Jesus, in Jesus, John saw taught and exemplified and lived out and then given love and truth. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting. That's truth and love. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John 13, a new commandment I leave with you. So the Jesus, the Savior, who met this sinner and transformed him into a saint because John learned the balance of life and relationship. He learned to balance truth and love. He learned a balance of ambition and humility. He learned a balance suffering and glory. And think about all that John saw in his life. He saw Jesus die. He saw his brother James die, because James was the first martyr. He saw all of his friends and family die. Heard of all the other disciples dying, including Paul. He saw the church succeed and then struggle. But he also saw Jesus alive and risen from the dead. He saw Jesus reigning on high. In those visions on the Isle of Patmos. He saw the church preserved and redeemed. He saw the saints of all time for eternity with Jesus. He saw that there was indeed a time coming when there would be no pain, no tears, no suffering, not even death. He saw the healing of the nations, creation restored, and Jesus with it. Is it any wonder that his last words of revelation would be, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. These were the last words of John. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And so as our worship team comes, I just have to ask. Do you realize that everybody in this room, every one of you, we are all sinners. Every one of us. There's not one of you here that's not one. We were born that way. Born an enemy of God. Born sinful. You simply grew up and lived out that sin- sinfulness. That's what you've done. Some of you have had the enormous general grace of God spoken about in Matthew by Jesus, right? He makes it to rain on the just and the unjust. You've grown up in moral homes. Your sinfulness manifests itself like the Pharisee. Look at me. Check out my good deeds. I'm not a bad person. And you then make excuses for your character flaws or you try to balance them out with your good qualities. But again, go with me to Matthew 4. Where John the Baptist says what he does, we're sinners in need of a Savior. So, are you ready to surrender who you really are to become what Christ died to make you? Are you a sinner ready to become a saint? Move from sinner to saint. Again, R.C. Sproul puts it like this. We are not saints because of any work we do, but because of the work Christ has done for us. And so, will you live this saint life for Jesus? So who of you this morning will embrace, I am a sinner, but I'm going to come to my Savior who will make me a saint. This is the writer of John. This is who he is. A messed up, good guy who met a perfect, awesome Savior. And God made him a saint. And it didn't matter what his baggage was. Jesus said, give it all to me. I don't care about your failures. I don't care about your righteousness. I don't care. Give it to me and I'll make you a saint. Church, will you live like that today and this week? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to look into your word, albeit a little differently today. Lord, even through this, you've been teaching me how to depend on you. My voice has been doing funky things and even Bruce in trying to do a good thing smacks his head on the television. And it is a reminder that even these interruptions and aggravations, inconveniences tell us that something's not right with life. I've had conversations already today with people that have talked about their knees hurting or their hips paining or their backs giving out. Or tiredness, or fatigue, or car accidents. Lord, every day, every moment of the day, we are reminded something's wrong and we're looking for something. And so, Lord, we kind of chase after you, and you're looking at us right now saying, What is it you seek? Oh, Lord, give us the courage to be honest. Let us come to you and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need to know you, I need a Savior. And Lord, when we trust in you, you make us a saint. So Lord, whatever anybody's issue is, whatever their question is, give them courage to talk to me or to one of the other elders or to a friend before they go. If someone needs prayer, someone needs to be encouraged, or someone even needs to say, I I got issues, man. Lord, help us to just walk in the light as you were in the light. And know the sainthood of Christ.